0: I'm John Pittman, and my arts blog today is a conversation with pianist Simona Dinnerstein about her latest recording, Undersong. I'm welcoming Simona Dinnerstein to the all classical Portland arts blog. Simona Dinnerstein, it's so wonderful to be able to talk with you once again.
1: Nice to talk with you, too.
0: Happy to be able to talk to you today, Simona, about your most recent recording. One of many, but we're counting this as the third of a trilogy of recordings that you've made in your home in Brooklyn during the pandemic and you call it undersong and and i'd love to hear your description of that word your reason for using undersong as the title of your newest disc
1: well undersong is a an archaic term for a, a part of a song that has a refrain and all of the music on this album is following that idea of the refrain. In instrumental music, that usually means rondo form, so it's a form where you have uh, some thematic material, then let's say you call it the A section, then you have something different for the B section, then you go back to the A section, then you might do a C section, then back to the B section, but there's always this feeling that you're returning to material that you heard earlier.
0: I'd like to ask you and other artists, what was the starting point in terms of the pieces that ended up on the album? Was it Cooperan's Barricade Mysterieuse that sort of set you off on this journey? Or was it sort of the landing place of that of that concept?
1: Yeah, I think that the Cooperan was an important piece of it because it was a recital program that I was doing before the pandemic, and I took a long time putting together this program. When I perform it, I perform it without any pause between the pieces, so it's really very carefully put together, This curated this whole program. Um, I think that I knew that I wanted to play Chrysleriana, and I knew I wanted to play the Kuparan, And I had to figure out how was it all going to be joined together. Um, And, yeah, it's always a very kind of complicated thing to think about music, especially music that you haven't learned yet when you're trying to figure out a program. I I spent a lot of time listening to music and thinking about the connections. And I remember being so excited when I realized that The end of the Schumann arabesque would perfectly go into the beginning of Mad Rush by Philip Glass and that transition was that was a particularly exciting transition for me.
0: (laughs) It's lovely when that works out.
1: Yes definitely it feels like everything in the heavens have aligned.
0: Between those two pieces by Schumann, arabesque is is a, is a lovely, lilting, of course, balletic-sounding piece, uh, fairly short. Chrysleriana, that's, to reference your father's paintings, that's a large canvas to work with, isn't it? It's, it's yes, a big it is. Con- yeah. It's a big concept. It's kind of a puzzle to me, although when I whenever I reread Chry- Chrysleriana, it kind of all comes back to me. But he's sort of, implanting little puzzles and clues, I think, in this music. Hmm. I mean, in terms of like, why Chrysler? Until we learn it's a character that it sort of sounds like he can relate to, an eccentric conductor uh, who suffers mm-hmm. from manic depression is what I read about it.
1: Hmm. I haven't ever, it's really funny, I've never really delved into the Chrysler story so much. The story around it that has always struck me was that he composed it in four days for Clara. I mean, formally it's dedicated to Chopin, but he wrote in a letter to her that it was really for her. And that element of it is something that makes a lot of sense to me because it's a very heated piece of music. And there's like a range of incredible tenderness and introspection and... Sadness and nostalgia with this like really heated feeling of passion and fury and love I mean there's all of these different types of emotions that were so you know that's so present in the the, the, the art and music of the romantic era um, so I think of it being um definitely the music of somebody who had some real issues in terms of I mean we don't really know exactly what was wrong with Schumann but the suspicion is that he probably suffered from he was probably bipolar or something along those lines so I think that he suffered a lot but he also had incredibly manic periods where he was very active and certainly this came out of one of those if he wrote it in four days.
0: <laughs> four days, and uh, just to give the listeners an idea of the, of the kind of piece we're talking about, I mean, the typical performance comes in at, is it 25, 30, 35 minutes? I mean, it's, it's a large multi-movement piece. And each movement, yeah. also each movement, I mean, there's a unifying feel to it, but there's also like each movement has, has, is very distinct from the one that follows it.
1: Yes, and each movement has different sections that are highly contrasting. So there are many, many sections in this piece. So though, though there are eight movements, each one probably has, you know, at least three or four different sections. So it's a piece that could sound very episodic, and one of the challenges of it is to be able to inhabit all of those different parts but also feel a thread that's running from the beginning of the piece to the end of the piece. And it's different than all of the writing that came before it in the arabesque, which is very lyrical, very beautiful, typically romantic. Um, So this epilogue is like this strange kind of, I almost feel like Schumann is stepping out of himself and looking at what happened. And he does that also in Kindertzainen and in the final movement and when the poet speaks, it's like it's like almost like breaking the fourth wall, you know, like he's suddenly looking out at us and saying, actually it's me that said all of this and you know, I'm the poet or I'm I'm Robert Schumann. And that moment in the arabesque is so striking and so beautiful and then this, the feeling of that, it has a kind of um, spare, a spare sound to it. And that's the mood of the beginning of Mad Rush. And um, I think that when I play those two pieces together, when I play them one after the other, it almost feels like Mad Rush starts at that epilogue of the Schumann, or that Schumann somehow morphed. <laughs> into Philip Glass. It's a great moment because it's crossing time and geographic place and, you know, so, so many things. I I like to think about music, musical connections in that way and not, I don't think that when we listen to music, art music, classical music, sometimes, sometimes people just approach it from a historical perspective and they, they think about where and when it was written, and what was happening at that time, but there's something uh, there's something that transcends all of that, which is I think the reason why it resonates with us now, and why we why we want to listen to the music is because there's something about you know you listen to Cooperan who couldn't have lived in a more different world than Brooklyn. 2022 you know and yet um he's his music is speaking about some part of us that is still there and that's kind of amazing really
0: about Philip Glass, Mad Rush why that piece and, and do you know anything about it, what, what the title means or or what what he's talking about in this piece
1: Yeah, well I, I chose that piece because of its form um, which is also like a Rondo form and, and also because I thought that in terms of the, the kind of quick change of emotion character expression that happens in it, it relates a lot to Schumann Um, Mad Rush, I don't know why he called it that, but I know that he composed it because he was commissioned by the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York to write a piece of music that he would play on the organ at the cathedral for the first visit of the Dalai Lama. And they wanted him to write a piece of music, this was in the, I guess the early 1970s, they wanted a piece of music that Philip Glass could play while everybody was waiting for the Dalai Lama to come, and they didn't know how long it was going to take him to arrive. So they asked him to write a piece of music of indefinite length. <laughs> and so I think they he got the right this... guy. Yeah, I know, I know. And and so he wrote that piece, which he played, and then he actually published it as a as a piece of music of definite length. And um, and I think at first it was played mostly by organists but then it started to be played by pianists as well. And I've also heard I've heard Philip Glass perform it on the piano
0: too. And you have performed for Philip Glass. We know that as well from the last year yes. or two. Yes. You've yeah. uh, this seems, this seems to be a recurring refrain. Simona Dinnerstein and Philip Glass <laughs> on recordings.
1: I just performed it in one of the most exciting concerts I've ever given, which was at Carnegie Hall, and uh, that acoustic there is just, uh, it's one of the best acoustics anywhere, and playing Mad Rush in that space was just magical because the the sound kind of swirls around, and he came to the concert, and um, which was really special because I think it was his first concert that he's attended since the pandemic. And um, he came out, and I spoke to him a few days later, and he said that he went home and he played it at home after hearing me play it. And he said, you know, you play it very differently than I play it, but that's good. <laughs> and I, I thought that was just, that was so much him, because he he's so accepting of people interpreting his music in different ways.
0: Does that seem to you like a sign of a great composer, great music, music that will stand the test of time, that it can withstand different interpretations?
1: I think so. I think I think that's true. I don't know if every composer would feel that way or say that they felt that way, but I think that that's part of what's great. What what marks great music is that it, it holds a lot of different interpretations in it.
0: I mentioned Víkingur Ólafsson, who uh, who made you know quite an impression. He made an impression on me. I know um, with his Glass Etudes CD, but you recorded some Glass Etudes as well and other uh, pieces by Glass, and uh, and I loved being able to hear the different interpretations by you and Víkingur um, and and several others. Um, yeah. And um, I'm I'm just kind of going off on a on a brain spin here, but I think he also just had a birthday, didn't he, Philip Glass?
1: Yes, he just turned 85 on January 31st. Yeah, there was an ice skating party for him at the Rockefeller Center ice skating rink. <laughs>
0: How fun! going in a little bit different direction, I want to ask you a little bit. You reference in your notes for the recording of uh, taking walks in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. What can you can you share with me about those walks and this music on Undersong? And, and is there a connection between the two?
1: I feel that there's a connection uh, because I would take walks a lot and go through you know the same paths and it felt like part of the repetition that was part of my life was that we would go for walks and uh, I hadn't actually been home long enough for to have a pattern of going for walks like this but during the lockdown that's what I did and I guess walking in the cemetery um, during a pandemic you do feel a, a real sense of reflection on on mortality and what it means to be alive and seeing, you know, seeing an active cemetery, you know, where there were burials happening during this period that it was quite uh, upsetting to see what was happening. So I thought that when I thought of the word undersong as the title of the album, I thought to me, it conjures up other images of, you know, what's running underneath our lives. What's what are the different um, hidden hidden meanings and and hidden themes that are underneath what we are all experiencing during this time. It was also a period of time when I was reading works by the transcendentalists, and working on a separate project that had to do with, with them. And so it all came together in my mind, and I just thought uh, it'd be really interesting to have a photograph of myself from Greenwood on the cover.
0: Today's forms of listening to recordings, it's different from the way it was 30 years ago. We had records and then we had CDs, and you put on the CD and you, you know, if you had the time, you'd listen to the whole thing all the way through the way that the artist had intended it. And I think about now how we have streaming services and people might kind of skip through and so forth. But you set up your, your music on this recording, I think, to be heard in a particular way. And I don't know if the, the version that I received is the way it, it's always presented, but you begin with the Couperin, Les Barricades Mysterieuses, and then you have a different version of it at the end. It's almost like the Goldberg Variations, where the aria comes back around and, and, mm-hmm. and brings us full circle. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering if, if maybe you had something like that in mind by putting a different version of the Couperin again at the end.
1: I did, yes. I I thought um, I wanted to have the feeling of return happen in the program as well as in each piece. And uh, actually, when I perform the program, I usually end by playing that barricade again at the end and i and it is like the goldberg variations and certainly that i love how the aria returns at the end and it's different it feels it's the same notes everything's the same except you feel so different from having played all of the 30 variations in between and i thought it would be really interesting to do that with the kuperan and i also couldn't think of another album that i knew where I had heard that like I I think that sometimes you hear on um, on rock albums or, or you know indie albums you'll hear like another version like maybe an acoustic version of something that was produced or something like that but I've never heard the same version like the same notes the same instrumentation just played differently because you're playing it at a different period of time and so I recorded that second version at the end after having recorded everything else and so that I could have that feeling of what it felt like to do it later.
0: All right, Undersong, the new recording by Simona Dinnerstein. Thank you very, very much. Kind of feel like we're, we're doing these regular check-ins, you know, every time there's an album. Yeah. It gives me another chance to talk to you and, and talk about music. And uh, this you. time was a real treat as a said you know being able to see you on zoom and talk to you almost like having you in the same room
1: yes yeah well great to see you all right take care
0: you too bye bye
1: bye bye